What's up, everybody? Welcome to the At Last Podcast, brought to you by the Advantage Podcast Network. Here at At Last, we are turning up the volume and raising our voices. And I am your host, Chris Bates, accompanied by my man, Adam Katie and Kristen Ross. Say what's up, guys. What up, what up, what up? So today, um, we've got a great guest with us. But before we hop into this episode's guest, I just want to take a quick moment to introduce you to the Atlas podcast if this is your first time listening where our main goal here at Atlas is to address and have discussion about some of the bigger issues that we see in our society as Americans but particularly how those issues influence and impact our profession as athletic trainers and sports medicine professionals um, so our goal is to help increase the number specifically of black athletic trainers in the sports medicine world. And then secondary to that, we hope that that impact will then open up the doors to other minority groups or other underrepresented or misrepresented people's people groups um, to have a platform or to be encouraged and supported in their endeavors um, as well. So with no further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Kristen, who will introduce our guests for today. Today, we have Dr. Carlita Warren, uh, who has an extensive background in sports medicine and athletic training. She received her doctorate of philosophy degree in athletic training from the Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions and has been a BOC certified athletic trainer for over 20 years. Uh, Dr. Warren, Warren is currently an assistant professor at the University of Laverne in Laverne, California. Dr. Warren, uh, can you go ahead and let us know a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Thank you, Kristen. As Kristen said, I am an assistant professor at the University of Laverne in Laverne, California. In that role, I serve as one of the core faculty members for our graduate program in athletic training, preparing students to become athletic training professionals as, and sit for the BOC exam. Um, in addition to that role, I also serve as a faculty liaison for the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Laverne with the intent of increasing our uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, not only at the university, um, but in the surrounding community as well. In addition to that, I am the founder and owner of the Kizo Effect, and this is a health conscious organization that promotes and inspires healthy lifestyles um, in individuals by providing health services to them and patient education for patient literacy and empowerment. In addition to that, we promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in health, healthcare, and society by way of research efforts. I love it. Can you, what does the word Kizo mean? Sure. Kizo is Swahili for blessed from God. How you spell that? K-I-Z-O. Kizo. That's, yes. that's great. That's good. That's good. And is that just, I'm, I'm very intrigued by that. We'll, we'll get into some of the stuff, I promise. But um, is that a, is that locally based in, in here in Southern California since you've been here? Or is this something you've been working on for a while? 
So this is something that I have been working on for a while. Um, it's been a baby of mine for about 10 years uh, with the recent pandemic and a lot of the racial tension that we've had um, in our society today. I have um, reinvigorated the business, if you will say, and I'm looking to have it um, not only service Southern California, but continue to service the areas on the East Coast that I used to service as well. So it will be more of a global um, institution. Yeah, that's great. We would we would definitely love to hear more about that and see how we can collaborate, you know, with the Kizo effect and work together on that stuff. So that's awesome. Absolutely. Sounds great. Good, good. So let's pivot a little bit. You br you brought up some of the, the 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 issues of the day that actually stimulated uh, Kizo effect and, and many others. It actually stimulated this podcast as well. As some may know, if you didn't hear it in the intro episode, go back and listen to it. Uh, I was about to say it again, but uh, I'll make you go back and listen. Um, but we, let's just let it suffice to say that, you know, I, I think this this podcast is part and partial to a similar, similar thing, right? Where it's like you have these ideas floating around and then you finally get to the point where it's like, okay, it's my turn to talk. You know, it's my turn to, I'm, I'm going to go now, right? So anyway, with that in mind, the the topic on the table today is this idea or this buzz phrase or this buzzword uh, or this I don't know hashtag um, all the different things that it has become of cult this topic how about that of cultural competence I'm gonna just stop right there and let that like simmer a little bit. At Vantage is the premier provider for non traditional work advocacy and resources while pushing the boundaries of athletic training follow them on social media at the advantage and join their email list for an even deeper dive into all things non-traditional and access to more boundary pushing content what's cultural competence yeah we're just gonna put that on the table Okay, um, when you are thinking about cultural competence, um, the first thing that I want to say is when we hear the phrase cultural competence, we think that that's like a destination and um, that it's an endpoint. And so I've taken these courses or I have um, participated in these professional development opportunities and uh, I've received my certificate and so I've arrived and now I'm culturally competent. But we don't really want to think of it as a destination and we want to think of it more as a journey. Um, to achieving a point where we are humble enough to understand that our own personal beliefs, our own personal values and experiences are not greater than someone else's, but they work cohesively together in order to have some cultural responsiveness and some um, cultural or mutual respect of differences in society and within people. So with that framework, to me, cultural competence is, um, it's just like a learned behavior or an understanding of differences where we begin to not only understand those differences, but we value them and we respect them in our daily interactions with people and how we engage with them and uh, how we perceive them to be through our lens or our own personal experiences and viewpoints. In healthcare, 
we take that a step further and we say that cultural competence is this level of understanding of these uh, differences or diverse populations of people. And we let those differences guide our clinical decision-making with patients. But in order for us to be culturally competent, we have to first have some self-awareness. So we have to have our own cultural self-awareness, understand our values, our viewpoints, our preferences, um, our personal experiences, and how that relates to the distinction or the differences of others. Mic drop. So Dr. Warren, Carlita, so there's some cultural competence there. We're going to model some of this for our listeners. I have been given permission. In fact, I was told to call Dr. Warren Carlita due to the nature of our relationship. But I'm going to call her Dr. Warren as we air this because y'all got to call her Dr. Warren unless she give you permission to call her otherwise. She earned that degree. There's a whole level of, I mean, and that's it, right? What I'm talking about in terms of modeling, this is real, right? I'm kind of joking about it, but there's a seriousness to this. So anyway, but I, Dr. Warren, I, the guys and I were talking about this idea of cultural competence a little bit before you, uh, before we had you on and you just succinctly summarized for us a lot of the things that we were kind of thinking ourselves and talking through. And, and so I'd like for us to maybe go dig into some of those a little more. I mean, you, you talked, that was rich. I mean, we're going to have to go in and list this for show notes. I think it was a very great framework as you communicate it, right? So maybe there's not this definition of cultural competence that we should be aiming for as, as much as it is a framework that we operate by, but you talked about this idea that it's not a destination you talked about this idea that it, so and therefore it's it's uh, it's a journey and not the destination. You used the word humble and and humility came up. There there was a variety of things. So help me out, guys. Like that that was a lot. Well, I think it was important that we define it just for people that may not even understand what cultural competence means. So that was important for Dr. Warren to lead with that. Another thing that I think is important to understand along the lines of it's never a destination is that. Even if it was a destination and you were as culturally as competent as you can be as a healthcare provider, you still need to recognize that you will still have implicit biases that are going to affect the outcomes of your patients. So destination to the top of cultural competence still doesn't mean health equity for a lot of individuals. Mm. And, and here's a great analogy for us as athletic trainers and then Dr. Warren, I'd love for you to talk and respond to what Adam just said specifically as it relates to not addressing bias and these types of things. But when I think about, I think for most of us, when we think about competencies, we think about that thick stack of paper where we had to get, at least in our, in our program, we had to get a senior student's initial, and then we had to get a certified athletic trainer who was an ACI at the time. I, don't, I think maybe that stuff has changed now, preceptor or whatever. And then they had to sign off on it. But what it had, what it demonstrated was, okay, you ask the proper questions for an evaluation or you palpated the right things for a particular special test or your hand placement or your position, you know, all of those things. Um, so when we think about competencies in our context, it does very much sound like it is a destination or it's like, hey, once I've done that, I can check that box off. I've got my initials, but it's not the same for cultural competence, right? 
And then to the point of, okay, I might know how to tape this ankle and I apply my two anchor strips and my, my stirrups and all of that stuff and I check, check, check. But do I know how to apply that stuff, right? And we talked about this idea of competency being something where it has to do with the ability to do something and maybe not necessarily you actually doing it. So I go ahead, Dr. Warren, go ahead and talk to us a little bit about, about that. Um, yes, I agree with that um, 100%. And uh, using the same analogy that you uh, presented with our competencies when we were in um, our academic programs, remember most of those competencies, it was a level of proficiency. So it was just saying that you're proficient in this. You, you have the ability to be able to do it. But even if you have the ability to do an ankle taping, for example, in that two minutes or less, I'm sure almost every program had us timed us on that to make sure that we were proficient um, in being able to do that. Can I apply that in real life situations? So in that game situation where I need to get that person back on the field, do I have the ability? Will I remember that I have the ability to be able to do that as efficiently as possible in that time frame? And so if you take that, that analogy and you bring it to, to cultural competency, yes, going to these professional development workshops or in our academic programs, uh, having courses that introduce the concept may help us be proficient in recognizing what is necessary to be culturally competent, but it doesn't necessarily translate into, can I put my own personal biases, be they implicit, unconscious, or conscious in check enough to be able to meet the needs of my individual patients who are culturally diverse from myself. And so that's where the distinction becomes. I may gain all the knowledge of what the textbooks or the current literature um, or even the experts in the field say about cultural competency. And I'm, it may raise my awareness of cultural differences, but it doesn't mean I can translate that skill into separating my personal viewpoints um, or my biases when I am evaluating a patient. I love it. Great. And Dr. Warren, something else that you said was the person has to have a critical self-reflection, right? And so without act, them actually realizing what their biases are, whether it's implicit or, you know, explicit, <laughs> yeah, explicit, then you can't really get to a point where you can affect what you're doing. Your patient and have a, a positive effect on your patient population. And so what does that look like? Like how do, how do, how do one get to a point where they're able to critically do self-reflection or self-actualization of their biases? And so that's where the fun part of these trainings, professional developments, or even um, academic courses come into play. Um, I believe personally, and I found success with that, even with some of my most recent classes, um, is that we have to have students feel and individuals, professionals feel just enough discomfort or uncomfortability um, to be able to explore what they are hoping is not them. So if you ever had a conversation with someone with, with regard to implicit bias, they will tell you immediately, um, I don't have any biases. I treat everybody the same, this level of colorblindness, if you will. And so the first thing that we have to do is we have to, to have them do some self-assessments. Um, more They could be standardized in nature or they could be 
unstandardized, but just bringing them to the point where they see that they do have some implicit biases. So I like the shock factor. You know, I, I will start any workshop that I do not even related to healthcare. I won't bring anything into uh, healthcare first because everyone will say that they treat all their patients the same, which is that colorblindness that we don't want. But I'll take it to, if you're in an elevator and the door is open and someone of a different background comes into that elevator or is about to enter the elevator, what is your first thought? You know, do you feel um, a sense of tension? Does your body tense up? You know, do you move into a corner? that might be related to some implicit bias based on a personal experience that you've had previously. If you're walking down the street and you see a group of individuals that look different than you, what do you do? Do you stay on that same side of the street? Do you have that first initial reaction of, oh, I need to cross the street or let me walk in the middle of the street? I start with that type of introduction because if there is a reaction to that, just me speaking that to you, then there's probably some type of implicit bias that you have that you might not be aware of or you're aware of, but you don't really want it to come to surface. So those self-assessments or self-awareness is the first step before we can even begin to talk about how you can become culturally competent. We've partnered with online-therapy.com, a complete counseling toolbox where you get all the support and tools you need to be happier based on cognitive behavioral therapy. Head to opportune.at slash online therapy to get started for free and enjoy 20% off your first month of therapy. Dr. Warren, do you do you ask the question, uh, <laughs> if you see a group of people and you're walking on the side of the street, does that group walk over to the other side of the street? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Because it's I'm I you know I mean we all know why I'm asking that right I mean I was I was crazy I was riding bikes with a group of brothers um all, all black guys we were it was just a small group of us too right it was three of us on a bike and then we saw another guy who wasn't on a bike that one of the guys knew and we were just kind of chatting with him at the corner and we didn't know what was ha some of us weren't paying attention because we were so much in the conversation. But one, the guy who was not on the bike, I guess he had lived in the area, so he was familiar, I guess, with some of the things that were happening there. And he was like, look, he, he, he interrupted our conversation. He said, it's okay, you guys could cross the street. It was, it was a, an older woman and then a, like a younger woman, so it looked like maybe a mom and a daughter. I don't know for sure, right? But I'm just, from my perspective, and then a couple of kids. Um, and they were just kind of hanging out. And when he, so I guess he had seen them for a while and eventually like invited them to cross the street no traffic no lights no nothing is what was keeping them there um and so once he said it now we're all paying attention and they were like oh no it's okay it's okay and sure enough we sat there and talked for at least another 10 or 15 minutes and they crossed the street the other the other street and then crossed over and kept walking up the street I'm not coming to any conclusions about that. I'm just sharing my observations. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so that I, I love that you start you start this discussion with those types of things. I, I, I interrupted you because I wanted to share that. But so how, how does it go then from there? Um, it usually goes pretty well. Uh, I usually have an infographic that shows the comfort zone. Most people have seen that and it shows where you go from the comfort zone to fear, to the learning zone and into the growth zone. And what I do when I introduce those scenarios, that's not 
healthcare based um, at first, I explained to them that right now you're all in your comfort zone. And our goal tonight is to unpack all of this together so that you move from what undoubtedly may be that fear zone first because you're, you're no longer secure in what you know or secure in people not knowing that you might have implicit bias or you yourself recognizing it and moving to that growth zone where we've taken this level of discomfort, we've acknowledged it, and now we say, okay, what can I do? to learn from this because in the growth zone, we learn, right? We gain new perspective. And so that's usually the hope that um, I have after all of these sessions or introducing individuals to this topic about culturally co um, cultural competence or diversity, equity, and inclusion in general. So that, that's usually the goal. And then we go into whatever um, the meat and potatoes, if you will, of that particular discussion is about similar to what we're talking about tonight with cultural competence and patient care. I love it. The growth zone, boys. That's that's a good one, because Dr. Warren, one of the things that we want to do is not only have some of these tough conversations uh, that we know will stir the pot, that we know will make some people uncomfortable. If we can, I think we're going to borrow that that idea of we want to then enter into a space to help people be in, a, in the growth zone. Right. It was this growth mindset and all of that stuff. I like that. Sure, it's not mine. You can <laughs> <laughs> I love, got it through research. <laughs> there's so much here. Like, dude, I just want the listeners to hear what I just heard, what we just heard coming from one of the people who does the research. What? Can you just say that again? What did you say about that? You said sure. And then what did you say after that? Oh, I just said it's not mine. I, I've learned it through research. <laughs> oh, man, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> We want to take so much ownership for stuff. Anyway, go ahead, Adam. Were you, you were about to say something? Go ahead, Adam. I was going to make a joke that I'm in the hypertrophy zone of <laughs> diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, we love strength and conditioning. Yeah. But really, really what I was going to talk about was that um, I don't think that athletic trainers and athletic training students are anywhere culturally competent, which is worrisome. It's also worrisome because even if they were culturally competent, it's not going to reduce their implicit biases. And I also think that we're a little bit behind the curve because the reason I, I made that joke about me being in the growth zone is that I've been reading a lot of research within medicine, particularly because a lot of healthcare research happens in the medical model. And I think you can extrapolate a lot of those things to the healthcare profession of athletic training. Absolutely. But what I'm recognizing is I'm reading systematic reviews from like 2010, 2012. And granted, research does take approximately 10 years to become practice. But I'm thinking, we're just way behind the curve. And we don't need to be because we can extrapolate these things into sports medicine and athletic training. We can utilize nursing research and medical research and PA research, all of these things to advance our practices but I just don't think that it is a high level of importance to leadership within the athletic training setting. And, and maybe I am espousing my views, but Dr. Warren, can you maybe update us to where you think this is going within athletic education, athletic training education settings? Because I think I was talking with uh, Kristen earlier to say that I think our inflection point or the point that we could have the largest impact to increase cultural competence, to reduce implicit bias, to then bring some health equity to the patients that we treat, I think that inflection point is early education of athletic training students. 
we should also continue to educate our peers and, and professionals. But I think that 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 starting point needs to be an early athletic training education. And I'm sure you agree, but maybe you can tell us your vision of how that happens in athletic training education. Yes, absolutely. Um, you're absolutely correct with that. And um, I will say that because of the pandemic and all of the social unrest and racial instances that we had over this past summer, um, I would like to say that somehow it became an eye opener that this is actually real and it exists um, in our profession. And so my personal belief is that the athletic training profession and athletic training education is in a state of readiness. They had blinders on initially and thought that everything was okay. There was this under surface awakening, if you will, to say, well, we know that there are some demographic differences and the majority, if you will, continues to be the majority in the profession. But we do have um, an influx of individuals who are diverse in nature that are, that are coming into our profession, so we're okay. But these most recent events, I think, took the blinders off and maybe swept that rug of comfortability from underneath us as, a, as professionals and um, put us in a position where we had to really look in the mirror to say, where are we realistically as athletic training professionals and in our athletic training education programs? And to that end, the profession and our um, accrediting body for athletic training education programs really are, they really position themselves in a state of readiness to learn, to see where our um, areas of vulnerability are or our deficits, if you will. That's my word. They didn't use it, but my word, where, the, where our deficits are and what we can do to improve it. And some examples that I can give you um, through our accrediting body for our athletic training education programs, our athletic training programs, we have developed or they have developed um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. And um, that committee is really working around the clock and working hard to see where the loopholes are, where the vulnerability is, where the deficits are in our athletic training programs, and then what we can do to improve that. Dr. Um, Warren, is that the BOC or Katie? It's Katie. Shout out to yes. Katie. Yeah, that's great. Yes, yes. Yep. So it's through Katie. Shameless plug. I am on the committee. Yeah, um, it was pretty competitive to get onto the committee, but we've been meeting um, around the clock to see where where the gaps are and what we can do to improve those gaps. So, for example, um, our standards that each program has to abide by for accreditation purposes. Uh, we noticed that the standards um, implied cultural competence and diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it wasn't explicitly stated within the standards. There's two standards that implied that we want to work with diverse populations or that we are serving diverse populations, but the words weren't specifically or explicitly stated. And so there's been um, work to revise those standards and add additional st standards that specifically or explicitly state cultural competence, cultural humility, um, because that's the next step in this arena and um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that's just one example of how it's happening. We're also trying to decide, should it be separate courses or should it be integrated throughout the entire program. Personally, I think it needs to be integrated throughout the entire program and have courses designated for that. Um, so hopefully that's the avenue that we will take. With the profession itself, they are 
cohesively working on a diversity, equity, and inclusion overseer committee, if you will, that serves or works with EDAC, or the Ethnic Diversity Advisory um, Council, to make sure that we are not only raising awareness of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or cultural competency um, issues, but that we are truly integrating it and ingraining it into our profession um, and providing professional development opportunities for professionals um, or practicing clinicians and really just doing the heavy work. So they are in a state of readiness is how I would present that. I love that. Yeah, shout out to the EDAC too from through the NATA Ethnic Diversity Advisory Committee. I've been seeing, we've been seeing a lot of activity more explicit and public, right? In ATA news and, 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 and the sorts, right? So good stuff there. MedBridge provides evidence-based courses, unlimited CEUs, home exercise programs featuring 600 plus exercises and much more. Use promo code THEADVANTAGE, that is T-H-E-A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E to get an annual MedBridge subscription for as low as $200. Speaking about like explicit and implicit, you said something that I think is very critical to point out in the context of this conversation that Adam has brought up, you know, as we're as we're looking to see what can happen and change from the athletic training education standpoint at the higher levels, as well as even some of the lower levels. But what you something you said that I wonder if it's worth, you know, standing out on its own is this idea of implicit and explicit. So we talk a lot about implicit and explicit in the in terms of bias, right? People, we all have our implicit bias. Uh, some of us have explicit bias, but a lot of times we have a hard time acknowledging the implicit bias when it's negative. But shame the thought, yeah. So, but the thought that I just had as I was listening to you talk, Doctor Warren, is a lot of athletic training education programs definitely espouse to have some of these as their values, diversity and inclusion, you know, and the institutions that they represent, they definitely espouse that or they have it as an implicit, it's an implicit thing, but it's not explicit. And, and so I wonder if there's something to our education programs and other leadership and things like that becoming more explicit about the values of diversity and inclusion and, you know, some cultural competence or cultural humility or some of these other things, cultural proficiency is something else that you had said earlier. Um, I, I wonder if that, if that's, if there's something to that. I, I think you need to, um, we should discuss right now the difference between being explicit with your actions, Chris, and then explicit bias, because those are two separate things and very different things. Great. Dr. Warren, what you got, what you got for us there? Okay, um, so uh, in its simplest or purest form, when we're thinking about explicit bias, we're thinking about those those prejudices, those stereotypes, or, for example, very overt racism, right? I don't know. I don't want to get political, so I won't say anything about uh, presidents, but... Um, <laughs> hey, well, hey, you just did. When, go, I know, right? Go ahead. When, <laughs> when people make statements that there is no denying what is meant by that, that's explicit in nature, okay? Um, so I'm sorry, but when our president um, said that individuals, you know, our undocumented family members are thugs, he relate, he, you know, called them thugs, and most of them are from MS-13, the gang, that's very explicit in nature. It's no hiding how he feels about our Latino or our Latinx family members, right? But 
what's implicit is kind of some of the examples that I gave earlier. So if I experience something that I'll give a, a true example um, or a real life example. That's great. I had an experience with an individual who definitely could have been considered the term we used to use skin, a skinhead. Right. Um, and he was very open and honest about how he felt about black people in general, but black women as well. And so he was very nasty to me, very um, rude, disrespectful. I was in college at the time and he spit in my direction. Was this on campus, off campus? This was on campus. Yes. Um, From that instance, every time I saw a person, um, a white male whose head was shaved until I was able to check that experience and deal with that experience, um, and recover from it. Every time I saw one, I tensed up. I became nervous. You know, I, I became on the defensive, like ready to fight, fight mode. But I had to learn. First of all, I had to internalize that's an implicit bias based on something explicitly that was done to me. So in one regard, I have the right to be nervous. But in the other regard, I can't categorize every male that has a shaved head, you know, because of that. Every white so male. That, yeah. Exactly. Every white male. So that implicit um, bias that I had towards white men who had their hair shaved, I was making an assumption, right? Um, and wasn't respecting them as individuals. I had to get to the point where I was willing to admit that, accept that, do something about it, recover from it, and then move on so that now I can walk down the street. And if I see a white male with a shaved head, I'm not, I'm no longer nervous or on the defense. So that's that difference when it comes to bias explicitly stating what our core values or mission may be for our academic programs is one, you have it in writing, be it on your computer, on your webpage, and all of your policies and documents, but not only having it in writing, but actually having it in action. So there's some implementation of these core values, this mission, and it's obvious, we can all see it. That would be explicit in nature. Implicit, would be we have it on our our um, website, we have it in our policies, but we have no action behind it. So there is no true integration of it in our academic programs or in our um, athletic training clinics for those that are practicing professionals. It's not enough for me to say we value all people and have diverse pictures of individuals on my athletic training clinic walls. Three under a tree. <laughs> right, that? exactly. But do my medical forms only say male, female, and that's it? Or do I have male, female, and transgender or other? You know, that would be an example of that. So thank you for teasing out the use of our word explicit, because I I didn't want listeners to get confused in in things that were being said. That was perfect, Dr. Warren. I wanted to touch upon something that you said about your implicit bias post-incident with that skinhead. You said that you needed to process it so that you didn't react in that way. But we have implicit biases because that's how our neuropsychology works. We receive so much information from our environments over time and just within a day or within a one-hour period that our brain will categorize things to help us try to deal with a situation. So your natural reaction and and this is everybody's implicit biases, is because that's how our brain works. The part that we have to recognize is that it occurs, so like you did, you recognize it's occurring, so that you could move forward and then not let your implicit bias drive your thought or experience from that day forward. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think about like the amygdala. I don't, I don't know where that plays a part in all of this, right? But I just know that that's responsible for fight or flight, right? The lizard brain in us. And so it, I'm sure it definitely is like, oh, last time I was in this situation, you know, I was almost in, a, in, a, in an altercation. And so I got to get ready to fight or freeze or whatever it is. But then Dr. Warren, maybe to the point that you're trying to get at too, Adam, is you had to use the higher, the, some of the higher levels of brain thinking and brain power to say, hey, logic, let me lean on you a little bit because I know that there are white males who have shaved heads who don't think about me the same way that this one particular guy did, I, right? I mean, athletic trainers, what if you could do more for your career, for your patients, for yourself? The Indiana State Doctorate of Athletic Training program can help you get there. You will learn the skills to practice at the top of your scope and show your value in healthcare. Interested? Go to www.indstate.edu forward slash DAT for more information or to apply today. <laughs> it's a matter of reprogramming, but even with before reprogramming it, there has to be a willingness to reprogram um, or want to, to reprogram your thinking. Or even an awareness, right? Yes. I love that you were, it's like, here's someone who studies and researches cultural competence and we are hearing her as well as many others who are trying to ring the bell and sound the alarm of implicit bias and all of these other things where we're saying, I start, I'm saying this because I start with myself. I know that I have these things too. So I really appreciate you from the stature that you have still saying, hey, me too, guys. Implicit bias right here. Absolutely. I'm going to uh, go ahead and turn right. Uh, for us. And so, Dr. Warren, you talked about uh, action and when you were talking about, you know, schools actually having actionable items on how they plan on implementing these things. And so I know you've done research on underrepresented minority enrollment and retention in athletic training education programs. And um, here at, at last, we're a lot about action, right? We want to know uh, what can we do action wise that can increase, right, African-American or black athletic trainers within the athletic training profession. And so uh, can you talk to us a little bit, you know, before we run out of time about what that looks like? Um, what are some things that can be done at these programs to attract yeah. and then also retain a diverse athletic training student population? Yes, absolutely. That's a loaded question for both, uh, but uh <clears throat> while they're in the programs and before they come to the programs. So um, just speaking very, very briefly, um, before they are even introduced to the actual athletic training program itself, representation matters. So in every entity, you know, your individual um, wheelhouses. So if you work in, in a high school setting, if you work in a middle school setting, um, if you are employed in a physician's office, every chance that you get that you can um, promote the athletic training profession, do that. Show yourself because you are a representative of the profession, but you're also, for many of you at last, you're an underrepresented minority and you're a male. So having them seeing you in that perspective gives them a sense of attainment. So if they could do it, then I can do it. So representation matters where you are, promote the profession of athletic training, promote it as a healthcare profession, because many people, many underrepresented minorities will say, well, I want to go into healthcare, but I need to be a doctor 
or I need to be a physical therapist. Um, even promoting physician assistant becomes important, but athletic training, right? Um, so just promoting that, letting them know it's a healthcare profession, uh, that they can help people as um, students will say sometimes uh, is one way that you can do that. So promoting the profession in a positive light, both verbally and through letting them see what you're doing in the profession, because that's promoting it as well. When they ask who you are and what do you do, you're, you're promoting it, whether you are using your mouth or whether you're using who you are in the community, okay? Um, and how, what type of services you provide to the community. Making sure that we are promoting STEM, the sciences, while we're promoting athletic training to let them know that that's a goal that's um, attainable as well. Once they are in the profession of athletic training or once they're in college, now that athletic training is um, a professional entry-level master's degree, when they come into these four-year institutions or these junior colleges, again, speaking to them about athletic training, letting them know what type of healthcare services are provided, mentoring them or matching them with mentors that's in the profession to give them a sense of goal attainment as well would help with that. I would say through your organization, apply for some of the grants that are available, the EDAC grant, where you can develop a program that you can maybe take into the communities that um, speak about athletic training and what services they provide, because that's exposure as well. Once they're in the four-year or two-year institutions, again, promoting the um, profession of athletic training, attending career fairs. If you have an athletic training club, have them do service opportunities on the community, um, on the campus. That brings exposure that may have someone else say, hmm, I didn't think about this profession. Let me learn more about it. And then once they're in the programs, providing the resources that they need in order to matriculate through the program into graduation. I can't stress that enough. Once we get them into, we can't just get them into the program and check the box that we're diversified. We now need to make sure that we provide the resources that may or may not be the same as um, our majority groups for them to be able to matriculate through and graduate. Once we've become professionals, we need to make sure that we're providing resources um, as well at, for professionals to make sure that they avoid burnout, that they gain um, work-life balance, um, that there are professional opportunities for them for growth and advancement so that they don't feel that they need to leave the profession of athletic training in order to advance and grow in the profession. Um, so showing one that we value them, um, but then also putting um, these types of examples into action, I believe would help recruit and retain individuals in our profession. I love how you tiered that for us. So we talked about Early education, right? Primary school. We talked, you know, through secondary school. Then we talked about undergraduate, graduate level college, et cetera. And then even as a professional, I want to, if I can add on to that, I think from the professional level, since we are all professionals, if you have not attended a high school job fair, I highly recommend it because these kids do not know what athletic training is. And I actually had the unique opportunity to do this at an elementary school once, even with Adam. And the important piece about this is, especially for those, who, for those of us who have been fortunate enough to, to and blessed with the opportunity to work at some of the higher levels in high level clinics and things like that that are more popular, right? Not that they're better, but 
we know that that's what the kids see, right? Oh, so did you have an opportunity to work with so-and-so and this person and that person? Yeah, yeah, actually, you know, leverage those things. We have a unique opportunity for that small percentage of us who have been to some of these higher levels, professional, high-level college, you know, whatever, or even just your college in the local area, the, it's likely a, a household name, to go to those schools and let them see that representation, right? So I, I highly recommend that. And then the, the other thing that I wanted to say, oh, go ahead, Adam, what were you going to say? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna toss something else out to, to Dr. Warren after you say this. I was just going to define it a little bit because in the kinesiology research, these enrollment barriers that you guys are talking about are social influence and experiential opportunities. Oof. So having personal and social influences can be very important for influencing enrollment, or if they are lacking, then that's a barrier. And then experiential opportunity is uh, acknowledging or having students having the knowledge that there's availability of role models, they have access to job shadowing and scholarships that would be available for that major. So if they don't have the, the that knowledge, then that's a big barrier. And that's been studied in comparison from black students to Caucasian students in the kinesiology setting. And that's based on the research, right, Adam? I, you're quoting from a research article. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that, was just, that was just the brain of Adam. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah, important. Yeah. I mean, yes, your brain is brilliant. But it's even brilliant to say that, like, for those of us who, you know, for those who might think that this stuff is just made up or it's not real, like, no, there's quantitative data that yes. and qualitative data that backs this stuff up, right? Yes. I was trying to hammer that point home. Yes. Yeah. Sweat CBD. CBD has become increasingly popular for treatment of pain, anxiety, focus, sleep, and more. We've partnered with Sweat CBD, who delivers 100% natural, full-spectrum CBD oils, gummies, and lotion. Head over to Sweat CBD and use code ATVANTAGE, that's A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E, for 10% off at checkout. Absolutely. The other something we've been kicking around, Dr. Warren, as we as we come to a close, Kristen, thank you for steering the bus and, and making that hard right. We leaning on three wheels now. Um, so if you're familiar with this, <laughs> I took a pause there because I'm like, well, that might need some explanation. <laughs> so if you're familiar with this work of of race in America and cultural competency and racism and all of these types of things then you should be familiar with this concept or this idea of the uh, school-to-prison pipeline, right? And, Dr. Warren, we, you know, w one of the things that we kind of talked about in terms of our community efforts for us, ourselves, as well as things that maybe we can get anybody and everybody on board with to some extent is this just this idea of the school to AT pipeline, right? And it's not a novel thing, right? Pipe, people have been talking about pipelines forever, right? Whether it's sports related, right? A lot of travel teams and, you know, right? There's a pipeline that you, if you will, right? Re coaches use it, sport coaches use it all the time to recruit and all of this stuff. So I, I think something we've been thinking about in terms of action too is starting to do all the things that we've mentioned, you even mentioned, you spelled it out very well, Dr. Warren, in terms of those tiers. Hey, if you're a student, if you're a college student, if you're a professional, these are some of the pr practical things that you can do, even if you're in administration in any of those settings. But the bigger picture maybe could be helpful to say like, hey, we 
are and can be responsible for building these pipelines from school, not to prison. We can because th- those exist, by the way, the school to prison pipeline is a real thing. So what if we started creating other pipelines that once our kids get into these pipelines, like they have there's other options so that their chances are now reduced of going down that pipeline towards prison and instead can end up in other ways, specifically athletic training. What, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that that's an interesting concept. And the first thing that came to my mind, I guess, being political again, is um, here in California, The one of the first things that we absolutely need to do, um, in my opinion, is um, have some regulation. So we need to either have the licensure or registry, whatever they're going to do in California, licensure would be absolutely great. But and, and if we can accomplish that, or once we accomplish that, there needs to be an athletic training professional in every school. Um, again, not only are you helping to improve the quality of care um, for those individuals, because if bottom line, athletic training clinicians are the primary healthcare source for those that are in high schools, um, colleges, you know, so we need an athletic trainer in every school. Um, you can have a high, a, a high school athletic trainer service middle and high school together, but if we can get them in middle, middle schools too, great, but that will help eliminate or at least bring awareness of our profession while we are also providing quality health care, um, and that can help eliminate that pipeline to prison and will foster that pipeline to an athletic training program. So if we can have that exposure on every level, uh, I think that that would be one of the things that we can do. And then just being community partners with other healthcare professions um, in our underserved communities. Athletic trainers can definitely partner with other healthcare professionals and go in and provide services, healthcare services in our underserved communities. We're excited over here because there's this theme, right, Chris? (laughs) Like, Without any stimulation from us, without being led into the theme, it gets back to an an unintended, I think, aim or consequence of or subsequent of like it comes back to you need athletic trainers in these positions. Um, What's the number? Uh, Chris or Adam, and, and specifically in LA, one of the things that we're looking at, we can kind of give a little sneak peek on something we're kind of working on. Yeah, there's, there's, um, uh, it's either 82 or 85 high schools, only LA Unified. So this, this is not even California. This is just Los Angeles that do not have a full time athletic trainer. Just in Los Angeles. I, I do want to say one thing, and I don't know. And that, Sixty plus of those schools have football. Yeah, it's, I think it's like 82, and then 65 have football. I want to say one thing. I agree with everything that Dr. Warren said and, and everything we've just talked about in the last couple of minutes. I'm not sure that licensure just makes it that all of those schools get athletic trainers. And, and in fact, I think it certainly isn't going to hurt, but I don't think magically LA Unified is going to be like, oh, licensure occurred. We got we to gotta now employ 85 more people. I, I don't believe in LA Unified in, in that way. So I think our, at last, as a nonprofit, Part of our initiative is going to be how do we make that happen with or without licensure? Because because we also don't want to wait for licensure simply because there is not the same amount of health equity in the schools that do not have athletic trainers. We talked about it extensively in the episode with Dr. Williams just in the context of concussion management. Mm-hmm. So, which is great. Check it out, by the way, if you haven't. Yeah, a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work to be done. 
in LA. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. Um, and one of the things that I just want to say, they can work simultaneously together. But I think when I'm when I'm speaking about the licensure, because it brings a level of um, reputable recognition when we have that licensure. Um, and, and coming from the East Coast to California, we already had issues because of our name, you know, that our, our name is a misnomer. So I feel like there were issues with people not understanding what we do and how we are a healthcare profession. But one of the things that I've noticed since I've been in California, because individuals, companies will hire um, a person who's not certified, BOC certified, didn't go through an academic program, but call them an athletic trainer. I think to that end, we absolutely need the regulation yeah. so that there can be a distinction, but, but definitely having them go hand, hand in hand. hand. We certainly don't want to wait till I agree with you 100%. We don't want to wait for licensure before we service our communities the way we're supposed to and provide athletic training services in every school. Yeah. The legislation is definitely an important part of that. Right. Like 100 percent, because then we can add law, you know, then we can get more. Now we can maybe get political backing even to say, hey, let, we need to put in law that your your kids need to have at least one certified athletic trainer licensed, registered, whatever, however we want to call it, you know, on their campus. We obviously know that and we uphold those standards here in California. Right. We don't we don't take lightly people who are not certified. Right. But they're operating in the role of a certified athletic trainer. Right. I mean, that, that's a whole different conversation. And I'm, I'm talking specifically as someone who is operating in the role of an athletic trainer, those things that are exclusive to the competencies and the experience and those types of things that we have as athletic trainers, which Unfortunately, guys, I'm not talking about just being able to tape an ankle, right? Because <laughs> that's a whole not we could talk about that later. But if you're priding yourself as an athletic trainer on your ability and the uniqueness of being able to tape an ankle, you're fighting the wrong battle, right? Because the truth be told, we had our one of our college professors said we could teach monkeys and other animals that have dexterity how to tape ankles, right? So that's not what we want to necessarily hang our hat on. There's so many other things that we can pride ourselves in and set ourselves apart by, right? So so, yeah, I think they do go hand in hand, right? Maybe not one before the other. I think we could talk for hours and hours and hours with Dr. Warren. I know she has some great ideas on, this is good. you know, the way that student athletic trainers could help at high schools with, you know, public health issues as she talked about um, earlier. But we would have to have that happen another time for the sake of time. Let's do it. Yeah. We're going to do that <laughs> if, if, if Dr. Warren is okay with that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So, Dr. Warren, thank you so much for coming on the Atlas podcast today. Do you have anything coming up that you want to promote? Thank you for having me. Um, I've definitely enjoyed my time with you all. I do not have anything coming up um, most recently that others would be able to attend. I just have a few workshops that I'm working on, some training sessions um, related to cultural competency um, and diversity, equity, and, and inclusion for several institutions. But I would like to say, um, just keep the Kizo effect in mind um, when you are looking for supplementary services um, to improve patient care. How can, how can we find, how can we find you with the Kizo effect? Yes. So the website is the, T-H-E, Kizo, K-I-Z-O, effect e-f-f-e-c-t dot com all one word no spaces how about social media you guys on instagram or twitter uh yes we are developing our instagram um and twitter pages now they're not up and running just yet but they will be forthcoming in the next week or so love it so 
we'll update our show notes and things like that if you want to come and find her if you can't find them on your own. Chris, what were you going to say? I think Adam has the same thing to say that I do. I will be assisting Dr. Warren at the CATA annual symposium, right, in February. And we will be talking specifically on cultural competence and microaggressions. So please make sure that you don't miss out on our uh, presentation. Adam, can you give us some more information on how to attend that? Yep. So CATA 2021 is going to be all virtual. It's going to be February 20th and 21st. Mark your calendars. Registration. Yep. Mark those calendars. Registration links will be sent out by the time this podcast uh, airs, most likely, um, or very close to. And please catch Dr. Ross and Dr. Warren talking about culturally competent care and athletic training clinical practice. Mm. A bunch of other heavy hitters. It's going to be great. Oh, yeah. Well, cool. I, I don't, um, Dr. Warren, do you have any parting words for us? Anything you would want to leave us with in light of our conversation tonight or just in general? Anything? Um, yes, I would just like to, in parting, say that keep in mind that cultural competence is a journey. Um, it's not a destination. And the other thing that I would like to say to uh, your listeners is to understand that listening to podcasts like this, participating in professional development opportunities, um, reading the current literature, all of those are ways that seeds are being planted in you to be able to grow and expand um, and become more culturally competent um, and to truly embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion in patient care. So take the time to find opportunities such as this, grow, learn. Every time that you go to one of these um, opportunities, you're planting seeds, you're letting the next opportunity water the seeds that's been planted, and the idea is that you'll produce a harvest that will help you become more culturally competent in your patient care. That's down, shaking together, running over. Hey, thank you again for being with us, Dr. Warren. It's been great. Thank you for having me. See, Bates, Dr. Warren crushed you. She crushed your analogy game. Yeah, she did. <laughs> I'm normally like the yeah. uh, the the itinerant analogy guy, but you you grow up in church. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. There's nothing, nothing but analogies. The cat <laughs> is out of the bag. Hello, yes. y'all. <laughs>